There was a vast plain sprawling with people and these people were facing a massive golden image. Horns blared out, music played and these people bowed before this image. But three men stood out in the crowd. They stood then before a mighty king who said, Why did you not bow before my image? And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If that is the case, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us from your hand, O king. But if not, let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the gold image which you have set up. A second scene, there's a group of bearded religious leaders and they surround a lone man like a pack of wolves moving in for the kill. And the man speaks. You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one, of whom you now have become the betrayers and murderers, who have received the law by the direction of angels and have not kept it. And when they heard these things, they were cut to the heart, and they gnashed at him with their teeth. But he, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God, and Jesus standing at the right hand of God, and said, Look! I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Then they cried out with a loud voice, stopped their ears and ran at him with one accord. And they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. And they stoned Stephen as he was calling on God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. How could these men be so bold? In the face of kings, in the face of religious leaders, they could be so bold because to them, God was massive and men were small. So today, let's look to our Lord Jesus Christ and His words to learn how to battle against the fear of men. Luke chapter 12, verses 1 through 12. We see in verses 1 through 3 here a setting and then a warning that is issued by the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 1, In the meantime, when an innumerable multitude of people had gathered together so that they trampled one another, he began to say to his disciples, first of all, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Jesus had just issued a volley of rebukes against the scribes and the Pharisees. And now there's an innumerable multitude of people, so many that they're stepping on one another, 
And notice the audience that Jesus is directing this toward primarily to his disciples. Beware of the leaven, which is yeast. Beware of the yeast of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. This leaven that he is speaking of here is the teaching of the Pharisees. We see that from Matthew chapter 16. And yeast most often is a negative picture in the scriptures. When it talks about yeast, it speaks negatively and it usually represents an impurity. Remember the Passover. And they were to use unleavened bread as their meal for the Passover. Yeast represented to them an impurity, something which in a tiny, a small amount would flood the loaf of bread so that the entire bread was filled with the yeast. What is Jesus saying here? He's saying their teaching, the leaven of the Pharisees, is hypocrisy. Their teaching didn't match up with their hearts. Their teaching did not match up with their secret lives. Thus they were hypocrites. Jesus says, For there is nothing covered that will not be revealed, nor hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have spoken in the dark will be heard in the light, and what you have spoken in the air and inner rooms will be proclaimed on the housetops. Here we have pictures both of lamps and of yeast. There's nothing covered that will not be revealed. There's no lamp covered that will not be revealed. There's nothing hidden. There's no yeast or false teaching which will not ultimately be made known. You put yeast in the bread and you're going to know, aren't you? It's going to look different than bread without yeast. I believe Jesus here is saying that in the judgment day that the secrets of men's heart will be revealed. Just like a lamp reveals what was in the dark and just, by, just like the yeast in the bread will expand in the day of judgment the secrets of men's hearts will be revealed. And in specific then he's saying the Pharisees will be exposed and proven to be corrupt. Now, for us, we also should realize that we cannot hide from the gaze of God, can we? The scriptures tell us, Neither is there any creature that is not made manifest in his sight, but all things are naked and open unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. We can't have any dark little secrets that we can hide from God. All things will be made known. So, what is the admonition to us? Don't even try to hide from God. Confess and repent of both words and thoughts spoken in dark and hidden places. For God sees all. God sees all. Then we have Jesus make this very bold statement, and in essence he's saying, don't fear people. Don't fear people. And I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body, and after that, have more, have no more that they can do, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. When he says, don't fear those that can kill the body, what Jesus is saying here in essence is, 
don't have an inordinate fear of people. Don't have an inordinate fear of people. And don't, in particular, he's mentioning here, inordinately fear physical harm from people. The disciples were going to face persecution, weren't they? They were going to be tortured, beaten. They were going to have to stand and be put in a tough spot where they had to proclaim Christ or die. Jesus knew that. And he's preparing them for that. So they're being instructed not to fear even under the threat of death. Now the reason I said that Jesus' teaching here don't have an inordinate or too great or too strong of a fear of man is because there is an appropriate fear of man that is proclaimed to us in the scriptures. We should appropriately fear the governments that God has put in place, both civil government, church government, and family government. Should we not? Did God not put into place, by His grace, civil authorities to help restrain evil upon the face of the earth? So, those who would do evil should fear the authorities, for the rulers do not bear the sword in vain. God also has put in place church government with the process of church discipline and ultimately excommunication. People should have a just and a righteous fear of sinning and an unrepented sin and continuing in that sin lest they be disciplined by their church. God has also established family governments. Children should have a good, sound, righteous fear of the discipline of their parents. And it should help restrain them from evil. But, a fear that crosses the line into an inordinate fear of men is a sinful fear. And we'll talk about what that means. So let's consider then some basic truths regarding the fear of men. Basic truths regarding the fear of men. One is that fear in and of itself is not always sinful. Fear is not always sinful. Obvious from the text, verse 5, right? We're supposed to fear God. So fear in and of itself is not sinful. But fear has to have the correct object. There's an object of that which we fear, right? Somebody that fears flying may have an object of fear, namely any type of device that they could get into which is going to elevate them off of the ground and send them soaring through the sky. So an airplane. So they fear airplanes. Why? Because they have a fear of flying. There's an object attached to that particular fear. Fear always has an object attached to it. The object can help us to realize when fear is sinful. As a general rule, and you're going to hear me say this many times from the pulpit if you sit and listen to my preaching, regarding our emotions, things that we would call emotions, such as anger, such as fear. These things are not sinful in and of themselves. How do we know when they become sinful? In regard to the fear of men specifically, it becomes sinful when it flows from or when it leads to omission or commission against the commandments of God. 
Since fear is not sinful in and of itself, if it flows from or leads to omission or commission of the commandments of God, then it's sinful. What do I mean by omission and commission? Omission is failing to do what God requires of us. Commission is directly violating a commandment of God. Anytime we have a fear of people that flows from a sinful attitude of the heart or a sinful desire of the heart, then that fear of men is wrong. Or anytime we have a fear of man that leads to us either disobeying or not obeying the commandments of God. That's a sinful fear. What would be an example in light of the text? A fear of man that says, I do not know Christ. A fear of man that says, revoco. Martin Luther was called upon to revoke his writings. He would not do so. Because he believed to do so would be to denounce the very gospel of Jesus Christ. He did not give in to the fear of men because he stood and he proclaimed the truth. If he had revoked, even though he knew that he should not and had violated his conscience, then that would have been a sinful fear of man. Fear of men becomes sinful when it flows from or leads to omission or commission against the commandments of God. Secondly, as a note, remember that sinful fear often flows from idolatry of the heart. Inordinate desires. Desires that get too big. Or desires that are sinful in and of themselves. If somebody is afraid of people, then they need to look in their heart and they need to look at their desires. And they need to see what desires there are wrong or too strong. There will be a desire in their heart that is wrong or is too strong. Maybe the desire is not to be rejected. And they have elevated that desire so high that they will compromise to keep people from rejecting them. You see, we've got to go to the heart if we're truly going to correct the problem. Sinful fear often flows from idolatry, the inordinate desires of the heart. Fear was one of our idol identifiers in the message that I preached on idolatry. And in regard to sinful fear, here's how this would tie in. What do I want this person to do or not do to me or for me so much that I will sin to get them to respond my way? What do I want so much from them that I will sin to get them to respond the way that I want? If you can answer that question, then you've found an idol in your heart. Something that you have exalted above your allegiance to God because you're willing to break the commandments of God to get it rather than being obedient to God. Fear is not always sinful. Sinful fear often flows from idolatry or inordinate desires of the heart. Here's some specific fears which can be linked to a fear of men. How about the fear of physical and verbal abuse? 
Nobody likes to be physically or verbally abused. But if they're so fearful of that that it leads them to violate the commandments of God and be unfaithful to God Himself, then that's a sinful fear of people. What about harm of reputation because it might lead to loss of job or status or possessions? Hmm. Somebody could fear people because those people might either slander or expose them correctly and it could lead to a loss of their job, a loss of their status, or a loss of their possessions. What about fear of rejection because of the physical symptoms of depression that some people fall into as a result of being rejected. What about this one? Fear of a loss of control because it could lead to being abused, rejected, or lightly esteemed. That's a fear of men that I've spoken to someone about even recently. A couple of these things on the list. I've talked to people who are battling against these things right now. And one of these people so fears losing control in his family because he does not want to be rejected. He does not want to be lightly esteemed. Well, there's an idol of the heart there that needs to be identified. And the idol is that the opinions of men are too big. And the opinion of God is too small. Ed Welch helps us a little more with this in his book entitled When People Are Big and God Is Small. He says this, If needing or fearing people is a universal problem, as he says that it is, he says, if you don't demonstrate in one sense or the other a fear of men, you better check your pulse. Because in one way or the other, if we really dig deep, we're going to find that we have exalted people to a level too high in our esteem, which often leads to that response of fearing them. If needing or fearing people is as universal a problem as it seems, then we should expect Scripture to be filled with rich descriptions and in-depth teaching about it, and that is exactly what we find. One of the Bible's dominant questions is, whom will you fear, need, or be controlled by? Will you fear God or people? Scripture gives three basic reasons why we fear other people, and we will look at each one of them in turn in the book. Not in the sermon today. He says, these three, we fear people because they can expose and humiliate us. Secondly, we fear people because they can reject, ridicule, or despise us. Thirdly, we fear people because they can attack, oppress, or threaten us. These three reasons have one thing in common. They see people as bigger, that is more powerful and significant than God. And out of the fear that that creates in us, we give other people the power and right to tell us what to feel, think, and do. So we need to learn how to see God as big and people as small. 
One other thing by way of introducing this topic, and then we'll dig into the specific remedies against the fear of men that Jesus gives us in our text. Let's look at some characteristics of people who fear men. Maybe you're saying, well, that's not me. That's just not me. I, I don't have any fear of man. I never exalt the opinions of people too high in my esteem, which leads me to a sin response against God. Well, let's look at some specifics. One characteristic of someone who fears men is that they fear the disapproval of men more than the disapproval of God. They fear the disapproval of men more than the disapproval of God. Remember the, the leaders spoken of in John chapter 12, 42 and 43? It says that they were afraid to own Jesus publicly, to say, we believe in Jesus, even though they did believe in Jesus, they were afraid to proclaim it publicly because they didn't want to be cast out of the synagogue. And then it tells us there, for they loved the praises of men more than the praises of God. People who fear men will fear the disapproval of men more than the disapproval of God. Lou Priolo, in his book, Pleasing People, How Not to Be an Approval Junkie, says this, The love of man's approval is inextricably, it can't be separated, it is inextricably bound to the fear of man's disapproval. When a people pleaser interacts with others, his thoughts immediately and instinctively run in the direction of selfishness, anxiety, and fear. Now ask yourself, have I ever had any of these thoughts? Ask yourself this as as you're trying to diagnose whether you have a problem that you need these scriptural truths to apply to. How about this thought? I'm not prepared to meet this person. How about this one? What does he think of me? I'll probably make a fool of myself. I can't reveal too much of myself or he will know what I'm really like and reject me. I can't bear the thought of being hurt again. I have to get away from this person as quickly as possible. Not necessarily talking about the thief who pulls a gun on you or whatever and you need to escape, right? I have to be careful not to say anything that might get me into a conflict. He concludes by saying, A people pleaser is not a peacemaker, but rather a peace lover. A peacemaker is willing to endure the discomfort of a conflict in the hope of bringing about a peaceful resolution. Peace not only is the absence of conflict, but is often the result of conflict. Right? If there's an aggressor, we could use the example of a righteous war, Peace can only come about through a righteous conflict. Hitler had to be stopped. There wasn't going to be peace as long as he was in control. A people pleaser is not a peacemaker, he says, but a peace lover. A peace lover is so afraid of conflict that he will avoid it at almost all costs. He is so concerned about keeping the peace with his fellow man that he is often willing to forfeit the peace of God that comes from standing up and suffering for the truth, he is essentially a coward at heart. 
So characteristic of people who fear men, they fear the disapproval of men more than the disapproval of God. Secondly, people who fear men often have not been fully impacted by God's love for them. As a result, then, they seek the love of people at the expense of the love of God. If you find somebody that is wrapped up with the fear of men, it is someone who has not fully felt the love of God and who does not fully know how much God loves him or her to the best of their ability. Thirdly, people who fear men desire the praise of men more than they desire the praise of Christ. Lou Priolo once again says this, The people pleaser is a hypocrite. He's a Pharisee at heart. His service to man and to God is contaminated by impure desires. His religion is more external than it is internal. What he does is done outwardly with his motive being a strong desire to draw attention to himself. His first thought is not how will God be glorified by what I'm about to do, but rather how will others perceive me when I do what I'm about to do. For him the question is not what will God gain if I do this, his question is what will I gain. He's not concerned primarily with how can I edify others with my words, he's concerned instead with will the words I choose cast me in a favorable light. Phrases such as approved by God, 2 Timothy 2.15, well pleasing to God, Philippians 4.18, acceptable to God, Romans 12.1, and even glorifying God, Luke 17.15, rarely cross his mind because he's not accustomed to thinking in these terms. His selfish focus forces him to think almost exclusively of himself. He is concerned, if not consumed, with the establishment and maintenance of his own reputation. His heart so praised being held in high esteem by others and to hear their praises that little room is left to entertain thoughts of what he might do to acquire God's praise. In reality, pleasing God doesn't matter much to him because he is so intent on pleasing man. So they fear the disapproval of men more than the disapproval of God. They have not been fully impacted by God's love. They desire the praise of men more than the praise of Christ. And then fourthly, they don't know or they forget that the Holy Spirit is both powerful and present. That God is with them at all times. So what are some remedies for the fear of man? that Jesus gives us in our text today? The first is that we are to fear the Lord of hell. We are to fear the Lord of hell. Secondly, we're to realize that we are better than the birds. Thirdly, we're to desire for Christ to say, Mine. And fourthly, we are to remember our invisible friend, the Holy Spirit. So let's unpack these. First of all, to help us battle against the fear of man, we are to have a fear of the Lord of hell. Look at verses 4 and 5 of Luke 12. 
I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that have no more that they can do. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after he is killed, has power to cast into hell. Yes, I say to you, fear him. Who is the Lord of hell? Many people think it's Satan. Many people think this text is speaking about Satan. Is that the case? Is Satan the Lord of hell? No, he is not. Remember, one of the characteristics, the first one I listed about man fears, is they they often fear the disapproval of men more than the disapproval of God. Man fears need to be impacted by the truth that Satan is not the Lord of hell, that hell is a dungeon for Satan and for those who fear men ultimately more than God. What does it say in Matthew 25, verse 41? Jesus there, after pronouncing judgment, says, Depart from me, you cursed into the everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Satan's not down there. He's not even in hell right now. But he's not going to be in hell whooping it up and ruling over his domain. You know, so many Christians have a Looney Tunes idea of hell. You know, with Satan down there in hell and whoa, ha, 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 ha. And he's controlling and ruling hell and dragging people into hell. That's not the biblical picture. You know, that idea of hell comes probably more from uh, Dante's Inferno. It's crept in from classical literature, so-called, than actually biblical teaching. That's not the case. Who is the Lord of hell? Look at the judgment mentioned in Revelation 20, 11 through 15. Beginning with verse 7. Revelation 20, let's begin with verse 7. Now when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison, will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, whose number is as the sand of the sea. They went up on the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city. And fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. You see Satan cast into the lake of fire and tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God. And books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works, by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. They were judged, each one according to his work. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. Anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. 
And who holds the keys of death and hell? Look over at Revelation 1, beginning with verse 12. Revelation 1, verse 12. John speaking, Then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the feet, and girded about the chest with a golden band. His head and white or hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace. His voice is the sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars out of his mouth, when a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and of death. Christ is the Lord of hell. He holds the keys of Hades and death. So, those who live a life of fearing people above God should look into the eyes of fire of Christ Jesus and fall down as one dead before Him. And then repent, confess their sins unto Him. And then when they look up, those eyes of fire will not be filled with the fire of wrath, but with the fire of love for them. We are to fear the God of hell. Secondly, we're to realize that we are better than birds in God's eyes. Verses 6 and 7, Are not five sparrows sold for two copper coins? And not one of them is forgotten before God. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. The second characteristic of man-fearers that I mentioned is that man-fearers have not been fully impacted by God's love for them. They, and can I even say we, all need to be more fully impacted by the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord for us, His children. What does Jesus do here? when he talks about sparrows, he picks an insignificant creature. Something these people were were very commonly saw that, you know what, you can go and for a couple pennies you can buy five of these little birds. They don't amount to much, but there they are. And Jesus uses those insignificant creatures to illustrate an immensely significant truth. And that is that God loves His own people more than whole boatloads of birds. We're more value, of more value to Him than these tiny creatures, but yet He even cares for them. And He knows about each one of them. And he cares enough about them that He knows when each 
one of them falls to the ground and he does not forget them. I want to just read through some scriptures. You probably won't have time to turn to all these, but I just want to read some of these texts which speak about God's love for you if you are a child of God. Has God impacted you with how much He loves you? With what an incredible treasure you are to Him? You know, we in sovereign grace circles can be so big on the depravity of man that sometimes we can miss or underemphasize just how incredibly God loves us. But what saith the Word of God? Ephesians 2 4 through 7. The God who is rich in mercy, because of his little love, no, because of his great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you've been saved, and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come He might show the exceeding riches of His grace and His kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Isaiah 49, 15 and 16. And some of these statements from the Old Testament are speaking about the people of Israel at that time. But are we not blessed with believing Abraham. So these are a picture of God's love for His people, whose people we are if we're in Christ, whether we're Jew or Gentile. Isaiah 49, 15 and 16. Can a woman forget her nursing child and not have compassion on the son of her womb? Surely they may forget, yet I will not forget you, says the Lord. See, I have inscribed you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. God has tattooed our names on the palms of His hands. They're inscribed on His hands. Hosea 11.4 I drew them with gentle cords, with bands of love, and I was to them as those who take the yoke from their neck. I stooped and I fed them. Jeremiah 31, verse 3, The Lord has appeared of old to me, saying, Yes, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness, I have drawn you. 2 Thessalonians 2, 16 and 17. Now may, the, may our Lord Jesus Christ Himself and our God and Father, who has loved us and given us everlasting consolation and good hope by grace, comfort your hearts and establish you in every good word and work. You see how someone letting the fact that God loves us immensely can establish us in the good work of living to please Him above men. 1 John 4.16 Knowing and believing the love of God for you, it says here, will empower you to fearlessness. And we have known and believed the love that God has for us. God is love. He who abides in love abides in God and God in Him. And consider for a moment, what did God do to make you His? For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believes on Him should not perish but have everlasting life. We talked this morning and in the lesson last week about the atonement and the fact that a central element of the atonement is that Christ was a propitiation for our sin. That God poured out His wrath upon His Son. 
who took the penalty that we deserved and the wrath that we deserved so that we could be saved. God's love and justice were on display. They kissed at the cross. Think about how much God loved you that He was willing to put His Son through hell. What does it say in 1 John 4, verse 9? In this the love of God was manifested towards us that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Romans 5, 6-8 For when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Yeah, you know, somebody might just pull up the gumption to lay down their lives for somebody who is really good. But God demonstrates His own love toward us and that while we were still sinners... Wretched, black, wicked, filthy, depraved, stinking sinners. He still loved us so much that He sent His Son Christ to die for us. Much more than having now been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from wrath through Him. For if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Do you rejoice in God? That you have been reconciled with God? And can that be taken away from you? What can separate you? Who can separate you from the love of Christ? So if you fear people and being rejected by people or being slain by people, remember the love of God. Who can separate us from the love of Christ? So tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we're killed all the day long. We're counted for sheep as the slaughter. Nay, but in all these things... We are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am persuaded that either death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. If you struggle with fearing people and fearing being rejected by people, then memorize these passages. Flood your minds with the truth of how much God loves you as His child. And that He will never leave you or forsake you. May God be big and people be small in your hearts and in your minds. So there's the positive application of the truth that God loves us. Let the realization that you are immensely loved by God lead you to love God in return. We love Him because what? He first loved us. And God loves us. And He's the God who never forgets. He's the God who is always faithful. And He loves us with a love a million times greater than we can even imagine. 
We can't even imagine how much God loves us. I mean, does that just leave you shaking your head? (laughs) You know, I've been there. I I probably told you about my experience of uh, about two years ago. Waking up in the morning, the sun is just starting to filter through the blinds in my room. And I pick up the scriptures and begin reading through Ephesians. And for a month, I read through the book of Ephesians every single morning. And I just remember lying there in my bed and looking up at the ceiling and saying, God, is this even possible that you could possibly love me this much? But He loves me even more than I can imagine. And if you're His child, He loves you even more than you can possibly consider. How glorious that is. How glorious that is. There's that great truth in Scripture. You know, you can't mix oil and water, right? They say oil and water won't mix. You can't mix perfect love and sinful fear. The Scriptures teach they won't mix. What does it say in 1 John 4.18? Perfect love casts out fear. Perfect love won't mix with fear. So if we're loving God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and we're loving our neighbor as ourselves, we will never fear men. So if we fear men, what do we need to do? We need to develop, by the grace of God, our love for God and our love for our neighbors. And that will help us to overcome the fear of men. Because if that's in place, we can't be afraid of people, simply. It won't happen. If we're truly loving God and loving them, we cannot be afraid of them. Impossible. What a glorious truth of Scripture. Ed Welch put it this way. I believe it was Ed. No, it was uh, Luke Priolo in his booklet on fear. He said, there is no drug, no pill, no powder that powerful anywhere in the world that it can take away fear. As powerful as that truth of Scripture, perfect love casts out fear. There are a lot of people on psychotropic drugs who still fear. But if this truth is driven deep in their heart, they will not fear. It absolutely will correct the problem. A negative application. Tell me what you think of this kind of man. What do you think of a man who has a 100% faithful wife? She loves him devotedly. She is submissive to him biblically. She serves him daily. And she sits and she cries as he drools over cheap floozies on the internet. And she weeps as he goes into prostitutes loaded down with STDs and then comes home to her. What do you think of such a man? When we show our lust for the praises and approval of men by fearing men and seeking to please and and approve them above God, we are worse than such a man. 
we are far worse than such a man because God's faithfulness to us, His children, is ten, ten million times more faithful than the most faithful spouses. His love for us is ten million times deeper than the most deep love that any person has ever possessed. And so when we fail to do what He commands or we violate what He tells us to do because we desire the praises of men or we fear people, then we are committing spiritual adultery against our God. He loves us abundantly. Let us not be unfaithful to Him. Let us be inspired by His faithfulness. And may that lead us in turn to be faithful unto Him. So Jesus teaches us we're to fear the God of hell. We're to realize that we're better than the birds. We're desire for, to desire for Christ to say, Mine. You are mine. Verses 8 and 9, Also I say to you, whoever confesses me before men, him the Son of Man also will confess before the angels of God. But he who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. You see, man-fears desire the praise of men more than the praise of Christ. They desire more to be acknowledged by people and have people say, Yeah, he's my friend. I know him. Than to have Christ say, That is mine, my beloved one. The one I know, the one I love. He is with me. Jesus spoke to the disciples here. Most of them were going to face the decision deny Christ or die and so what does Jesus say he puts the hard truth right in front of him. them he says deny me before men and I'm going to deny you before the angels of heaven deny me before men and I will deny you in the judgment This concept of the angels participating in and viewing the judgment is in the scriptures in several places. Consider for a moment 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. It says in verse 8 that Christ is going to come in flaming fire taking vengeance on those who do not know. Begin with verse 7. He's talking about that Christ is going to come and give you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. In flaming fire taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. 
But he comes in that day to be glorified in his saints and to be admired among all those who believe because our testimony among you was believed. So, we desire to desire for Christ to acknowledge us. Have you ever been denied or rejected in a public setting? Have you ever had someone publicly say, I hate you? Or, I'm leaving you? Or, I don't know you? Or, I don't want to have anything to do with you? That hurts, doesn't it? It's like a double-edged dagger cutting both ways straight into our hearts. That hurts. Jesus says those who deny Him will be denied by Him. But those who acknowledge Him, He will never deny them. He will claim them in that day. He will say, You are mine. So if you struggle with the fear of men and you struggle with denying Christ either in your words or in your deeds, because in essence, not in the fullest sense, but in a slight sense, we deny Christ every time we disobey Him. Because He says, if you love me, keep my commandments. If you struggle with that, then you need to nurture, build up, strengthen the desire for Christ to say, Well done, my good and faithful servant. Do you want to hear those words from your Jesus? Well done, my good and faithful servant. Focus in on that. When there's someone standing before you that you know if you do what's right, they're going to reject you or deny you. Hear the words of Jesus. Well done, my good and faithful servant. And may that empower you to stand for Him and not fear men. Fear the Lord of hell. Realize you're better than birds. Desire for Christ to say mine. But then remember your invisible friend, the Holy Spirit. You know, there there are children who have invisible friends. In their their case, maybe it's it's a make-believe friend, right? But you know what? They can find comfort in that friend and and that invisible friend can actually even help them overcome fear. If they know that their invisible friend is with them, then they're not afraid. But we have an invisible friend who is the God of the universe. And He holds the divine power in His hand. The Holy Spirit is the active agent of God in creation. God the Father decrees. God the Son also works, but it's the Holy Spirit ultimately down where the rubber meets the road causing things to happen. When God created, the Spirit of God hovered over the face of the waters. Remember? The Scriptures talk about the Spirit, God's Spirit breathing on the grass and it dies. The Scriptures teach us that the Holy Spirit is the eternal Spirit. Hebrews 9.14 That He is omnipresent. Where shall I go? Where shall I flee from your Spirit? 
I ascend into heaven, you're there. If I ascend into hell, behold, you're there. If I take the wings of the morning and soar to the uttermost ends of the earth, you see, you're there. The Holy Spirit knows the hearts of men, 1 Corinthians 2.10. The Holy Spirit has power to work, Romans 15.19. He is the Spirit of glory and the Spirit of God, 1 Peter 4.14. And He was the agent in all of creation, Genesis 1.26 and 27 and Job 33 verse 4. Have you ever had a companion that you were with and fear was gone? (laughs) Because you knew that that person was with you. And as long as they were with you, that you could endure and that fear was taken away. Think about how big God is. And the Holy Spirit is always with you if you're His child. And what does it say here in our text? He's speaking to these men directly and He says, Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But to him who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven. Now when they bring you to the synagogues and magistrates and authorities, do not worry about how or what you should answer or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. He's saying, don't worry about what you're going to say and how you're going to defend yourself. Realize that your companion, the Holy Spirit of God, is knowledgeable and He is powerful. And He will help you and instruct you in that time. The Holy Spirit of God speaks to us today through the written pages of the Word. And He brings the understanding of the words to bear in our hearts. And He teaches us the Word. And that's the way He primarily works today, although His arm is not shortened to work directly through somebody in a time of trial or need. But realize that the Holy Spirit is with you. We have this constant companion in Him. So we're to fear the Lord of hell, to realize that we're better than birds, desire for Christ to say mine, and remember our invisible friend, the Holy Spirit. And then may I point us also to our ultimate example of He who never feared men. Look at Luke 13, 31-33. And realize that if you are in Christ, that means you've been united to Him. And that means that His obedience unto God in never fearing men is counted as yours, but it also means, and don't miss this half of the equation, it also means that you are empowered to fear God above men if you are Christ's child. If you are united in Christ, you have the power by the grace of God not to fear people, but to make people small and God big in your thinking. Look at our Lord Jesus. Luke 13, 31-33. 
On that very day some Pharisees came saying to him, Get out and depart from here, for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, Go tell that fox. Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I shall be perfected. Nevertheless, I must journey today, tomorrow, and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish outside of Jerusalem. Let's pray. Give us grace, Father, to see how big you are. To see our Lord Jesus Christ, the one to whom you have given the keys of death and hell. To acknowledge, believe in the Holy Spirit who is always with us and empowering us to do that which is right. Oh, Father, help us not to sin against you by fearing people and being a puppet on a string. But help us to be those spoken of in the Proverbs, the righteous who are bold as a lion. May we be able to stand before people not fearing what they'll think of us, whether they'll reject us, whether they'll expose us, whether they'll abuse us, whether they'll harm us. But loving you and loving them above all and be willing to stand as so many thousands upon thousands of martyrs have stood and say, I will not reject Christ. Do your worst. For my God is powerful and mighty and loving beyond compare. I pray, Father, that you will help us to look deep in our hearts and know when we are sinning against you in this way. And then may you give us grace to remember this passage of Scripture and these teachings of Jesus. And may we fill our minds with these truths until our minds are filled with them and it drives out the fear. Do this for your glory so that we might honor you and praise you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You're dismissed.